You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Welcome, Lesson 4 on the Prophets. We are now um, at the phase where the Prophets kind of get... uh, on the bad side of the law. And so, if you remember from where we came last uh, lesson, the prophets were part of David, King David's administration, and uh, Samuel, Gad, um, and Nathan had uh, very harmonious relationships with David, and uh, it appears, at least for the first half of Solomon's reign, with Solomon... But after that, because of Solomon's idolatry, God judges the house of David by splitting the kingdom. And if you remember the end of the last lesson, Jeroboam, who was in charge of all the forced labor for Solomon's empire, rebels against Solomon. And later when his son uh, takes over the throne, ten tribes leave Solomon. Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam's grip. And a prophet warns Jeroboam and says, uh, now God has punished David's house because of idolatry. They're going to keep two houses, or two tribes. If you follow the Lord, however, God will establish your kingdom. And as I told you, um, Rehobo- or Jeroboam and Rehoboam uh, both do not follow the Lord. But... Uh, Jeroboam uh, sins and leaves the Lord. He ends up uh, coming up with a pretty good plan, politically speaking. The, the problem with the kingdom of Israel, and this is my crude drawing of Israel, is that you have the center of religious ceremony down here in the south in the capital of Jerusalem which is where the tribe of Judah and Benjamin live uh, down here. This is Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes live up here and then around the Jordan. And so when the kingdom splits, the kings of Israel, which is what we're going to call the north, Israel and Judah, that's what the Bible calls them, kings of Israel realize they can't have people crossing the border to go worship the Lord anymore. So they come up with a solution, and that's to put two golden bull statues, one in Samaria, or actually in Bethel, which is right along the border, and one up in Dan in the north, because geographically dispersed, you don't want them having to go all over the place. And they they style it as if these bulls symbolize the God of Israel. It's still not a foreign God. It's still breaking the Ten Commandments, though. Because God said, do not make a graven image. But in theory, it's still the God of Israel. Hey, come serve the God of Israel here at Bethel or up in Dan. Um, These two altars become the spiritual center of the northern kingdom. But they're against God, and God does not like them. 
And so, politically speaking, that solves the issue of the temple being in Jerusalem. Um, so, what ends up happening is a lot of warfare between the two kingdoms. But there's a kingdom to the north called Syria, the capital of its Damascus at the time. And, you know, the Philistines are still along the coast. You know, the time, the uh, Tyre and Sidon up here with the Sidonians, uh, the Moabites, the Edomites, and even Egypt down here, and then the Assyrians way up there. Hittites are in Asia Minor, but they don't play a big part right now. They, uh, they're kind of out of the way. And so you've got uh, enemies on every side, and so pretty quick the people of Judah and Israel don't fight directly. They still share a culture, even if they're, they've split up. And uh, so they, they are separate, but the religious center is no longer in Jerusalem for the northern kingdom. That's just some background information so that you kind of become aware of what's happening. Most of the prophets that we're going to deal with are dealing with the northern kingdom. They are preaching against the northern ten tribes. They're dealing with Samaria and this whole area. And so, uh, you're, you know, just for background purposes, when I say Israel, um, now I mean something different than I would have during the last lesson because we're talking about the northern kingdom, the northern five-sixths of God's people. All right, <clears throat> let's get into... Mainly Elijah and Elisha, but also some other prophets uh, eventually. Well, um, if you look at your paper, Israel splits into two kingdoms after the reign of Solomon. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. So Israel and Judah. And prophets uh, who during the time of David were part of the royal administration often find themselves as blank during this period of Israel's history. We kind of talked about it last week. They are outsiders. Yeah, outsiders. They are uh, many times ostracized. Their job, however, remains similar as they are called to be blank of God's covenant with Israel. It's the same, yep, mediators, same word as last time. And so everything I told you is the next two bullet points. But later kings went further than the early kings of Israel. They weren't content just to have two religious centers to the God of Israel in the north and south with golden cows, golden bulls, they began to import foreign gods because they wanted to make alliances with the kingdoms around them to uh, really become protected from a resurgent Syria, a stronger Syria. Now, here's the way it happened. Um, Y'all know that when we start talking about Elijah, Elijah has a very famous king of Israel that is his enemy, 
and he's uh, he's named after <laughs> it's the opposite. He's named after a character in a Herman Melville book. Um, it's King Ahab. Now Ahab, the king, uh, inspired the name of uh, Melville's character, not vice versa. But he has a very famous queen that shows up a lot in. Yeah, Jezebel. We still use the term Jezebel at times. Now, Jezebel was a Sidonian. Her family um, was from Tyre. She's Phoenician, probably Greek culture, um, like old Mycenaean Greek. Um, she worships um, different gods, and... The marriage is an alliance for political strength against Syria. And much like Solomon, Ahab just thinks, you know, I've got this wife who doesn't follow the God of Israel. I'll let her build a temple to her gods in the capital city so her and her court can kind of keep themselves occupied. And at first, you know, it, in many ways, you're going to see mirrors to this in our own society. It's like uh, Israel goes, okay, here's our religious life supposed to all belong to the Lord. We're going to make one little corner over here that can be for the Baals and just keep it private, keep it over there, and it'll be okay. Because those people, we can't tell them what to do. They're not Israelites. But what you're going to find out is that as they make a corner for foreign gods, Ashtaroth, Baal, Shamash, others, um, it begins to be where the worship of God is put over in the side and persecuted by the people who should be ostracized from Israelite society, worshipers of foreign gods and Baal and all these others. And so uh, that's what eventually happens. Now, this is you know, very much what has happened in our culture where at first we said marketplace of ideas and tolerance. You have to have room for people of different beliefs. And after about 20 or 30 years of that, it was, you can't practice Christianity in any form in the public sphere under the name of neutrality. But you, you know, you can practice other religions because we have to be <clears throat> sensitive to other cultures. But Christianity becomes more and more uh, attempted, you know, to be pushed out of the public sphere. So it's a very similar, this has always happened. This has always happened. Now, we're not Israel. We're America. We're different. But the mechanism by which this stuff happens is kind of similar. And so Queen Jezebel is going to be a big part of this, and she's going to kind of show up in our story. So turn to the book of 1 Kings. You can look at chapter 12, and I'll just... Just I'm marching you through large amounts at once here, but uh, Rehoboam loses the kingdom. And if you remember the story, the counselors come to him, his older counselors, and he has younger counselors who are all his friends. And the older counselors say, listen, your dad worked these people pretty hard, and they're kind of mad at him. If you relax some of the demands, these people are going to love you and they're going to serve you. But Rehoboam is a fool, and he says, you know, if you thought you knew tough, you should wait till you see what I'm going to do to you. You know, he, he, he basically says, um, 
my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined me with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So they leave him. They rebel. And the guy who heads it up is Jeroboam, who was head of the forced labor and, and kind of like the interior minister or something of the kingdom, you know. If you want to imagine, he was the one who built everything, logistics, food supply. I mean, like, you know, basically he could run the kingdom. And he goes away. And so in verse 25 is where Jeroboam built uh, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, lived there. He built Penuel. And now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifice in the temple of the Lord Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And that was where we have these two bulls from. So... Uh, in chapter 13, it says, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! Look at this. The prophet comes. This isn't like David anymore. It's I have sinned against the Lord. This is get him. So seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. So you can kind of see that things start poorly for the new altars and the new king. Um, God sends a prophet and he's not listened to. Um, we get uh, Jeroboam's days are... Mm. Not long. His his line is cut down, and we get a lot of wicked kings. In fact, uh, if you look in Kings and Chronicles, there are twenty kings of Israel and twenty kings of Judah listed in the histories. Um, I believe it is that of the kings of Judah, eight fear the Lord and twelve don't. But in Israel, zero fear the Lord and twenty are considered unrighteous and terrible. And so, um, let's look over in 16.7. Basha is another king in Israel. Um, and in verse 7 of chapter 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu. So we have this prophet introduced here. The son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. And so this prophet um, speaks against his house, and it doesn't last long. There's uh, Elah, then Zimri, then Omri. All these kings are killing each other. They're assassinating each other. And then at the end of chapter 17 or at the end of chapter 16 we have Ahab. Ahab finally seizes power 
and stabilizes the northern kingdom. Are you with me now? We're, we're just walking through. It, it sounds like something of the Roman Empire where you had like the year of three emperors or something like that. You've had in a matter of, you know, not even a generation, multiple kings in the northern kingdom and just different dynasties, bloodbath after bloodbath. And it finally stabilizes with Ahab. He marries Jezebel and forms a pretty solid kingdom. He's, he's actually pretty strong. He's a good, competent leader from a political and historical sense. And Ahab, um, in verse 29 of chapter 16, reigns over Israel. He's Omri's son. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It says, more than all who were before him. Like, how would you love that to be on your tombstone? He did more evil than all those who came before him. 31, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So just another little note back. The people around him didn't even listen to the history, and they did things that cost them a lot of pain because they just completely rejected the word of the Lord in a prophetic and historical sense. Because in the book of Joshua, it said, don't rebuild the city of Jericho. Um... Ahab's terrible. I mean, he's good for his kingdom because he stabilizes it, but he's terrible. Let's talk a minute about Baal worship because I want you to understand what the worship of Baal entails. We hear about him in the Bible a lot, but we don't quite know what it's talking about. Baal was a fertility god, a sky god, a storm god. He reigned. He, he reigned on the earth. If you made him happy, rains would come. In this area, if you don't have rain, you have a drought and you you die. There's no irrigation. There, you know, there's the Jordan River and stuff, but that doesn't go out very far. So Baal was necessary for survival. There were, there were two other uh, pretty big deities in that pantheon, and one of them would kill Baal every once in a while in the mythology, so Baal would go to the underworld, and another one would raise him up. So when it was a drought, Baal was supposed to be dead which happened from time to time, went to the underworld, and then you brought him back. Also, uh, this is going to sound kind of funny. Come on in, come on in. Are we late or what? You're always on time. No, we started just a little bit early because of Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, okay. So Baal would die from time to time in their mythology, go to the underworld, and he'd have to be raised by rituals. Also, he would go on trips or he would go missing. So you're going to find out in a minute when Elijah, make, Elijah makes fun of him. A lot of this is in the Baal mythology. But the main thing to remember, Baal makes rain and he's a sky god. This is going to be big because when Elijah bursts onto the scene at this point in the story, he's going to go right for the jugular with Baal worship. So let's look now. 
people talk about, you know, narrative structure. And a lot of times you want to introduce your character, right? You want to slowly get the audience ready. Well, the writer of the book of 1 Kings does not do that. He just says in chapter 17, verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead. Okay, who is he? I don't know. Some Tishbite. He lives around Gilead, which I believe is like on this side of the Jordan, um, if I remember correctly. Gilead is the far side. So Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What did I say Baal was? So what has Elijah just done? I mean, this is, this is really good if you understand the way he attacks here. That his God is stronger than your God. Right. Elijah just basically challenged him and said, your God is not going to be able to do anything until I say so by the word of the Lord. Um, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book of, brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. So east of the Jordan River, this is east, this is the Jordan River, God sends him out of the geographical land of Israel and sustains him with the ravens and meat and brook in the wild. When you look at this, a lot of the ancients believed that gods were tied to certain geographical realms and they couldn't act outside of that realm. So like, you know, Walton County would have their god in ancient times. And if you went to Okaloosa County, the Walton County god couldn't reach you. Supposedly. You know, that's kind of how they thought. And so... Not only is Elijah going into Israel and telling King Ahab, your God can't work, I've just made the rain stop, but then he leaves a geographical area where God should be able to protect him and gets fed for this whole time. So just showing that God can do anything anywhere he wants, y'all can't stop him. And uh, it said, verse 5, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook, the brook dried up because there's no rain in the land. So now he goes to the widow of Zarephath, also not an Israelite woman. And not only does he help her survive, he raises her son from the dead. So we're, we're getting into a weird thing happening here that really hasn't happened very much, uh, I would say, since the time of Moses. Elijah is a miracle worker. He does signs and wonders and miracles. Now, you will read in the Old Testament a lot about miraculous things happening but seldom are they attached to the person that is the messenger of the Lord. Like Samuel, um, he may win a battle by seeking the Lord, but this whole miracle thing is a little different. We're going to have a lot of them. Actually, Elijah has seven direct miracles recorded, and Elisha, <clears throat> who asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, does 14 miracles recorded. Pretty cool, huh? 
But this whole idea of the miracle worker is going to play out later in the time of Jesus. Well, like, like think about Daniel. Daniel didn't work any miracles. That he read signs and dreams, but he didn't work miracles. Jeremiah, Isaiah didn't work miracles. They got the word of the Lord. But a miracle is just, it's something weird here. And it's not something every prophet does. Jesus did miracles. The apostles did miracles. What is the deal with miracles? So he's the first miracle worker in the prophetic line. And he's fighting King Ahab uh, tooth and nail for the religious supremacy of God versus Baal in Israel, the northern kingdom. So, chapter 18, Elijah finally gets a word from the Lord. It says, it's time to confront Ahab. And this is like the big battle. Everybody's getting ready for it. And so there's this guy who serves Ahab named Obadiah. Obadiah means the servant of the Lord. Uh, Ebed is slave and Diah is of the Lord. So Obadiah slave of the Lord, servant of the Lord, and he is a godly man. He actually has hidden several hundred prophets of God in a cave and feeds them and keeps them out of harm's way uh, because obviously Ahab's kicked them all out of the royal court. You know, they're, they're not there anymore, and it's kind of illegal. And so Elijah's like, go get Ahab, and he's like, you want me killed because you may disappear. So I guess like it seems that he had a reputation of being somewhere and then disappearing because God would just tell him to leave and he would move out of the way and they just thought he's like being beamed up or something. So he goes and gets Ahab and verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He's blaming him for all the bad stuff coming in Israel. Not his idolatry. Not his faithlessness to God, but it's Elijah's fault for having the word of the Lord. He's the troubler. Verse 18, and he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? So obviously the common citizen of Israel still remembered the Lord. And they're like, I know we're supposed to serve him, but these new kings, they tell us we've got to serve Baal too. And so they were all mixed up. And we know from the archaeological evidence in Judah, a couple of hundred years later, there's going to be different houses where in some houses... They've got these names like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Nathaniel that use the Yah and El uh, stems. And those are names designated which God you serve. My name, Joshua, is actually Hebrew Yeshua, the Lord saves. It's got Yah at the end. Uh, the word Nathaniel, gift from God, El being the word for God. So a lot of these Hebrew names show who you belong to. Well... The same way in these ruins they'll find over here, like we saw a minute ago, like, uh, you know, Pubel, which is, you know, fights for Baal or something like that. It's like a name like, hey, he serves this guy. Remember this happened in the exile too. They changed Daniel's name to Belteshazzar. Remember that? For these foreign gods. They changed uh, the three boys to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
So the people are divided. Some still serve the Lord, some Baal, and some both. They just go limping back and forth, and he's confronting them. And he said, uh, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, what type of fire is he talking about? Lightning. Lightning. What type of God was Baal? So he should have the home court advantage, right? This is like wanting to play in front of an enemy crowd for the championship. This is how confident Elijah is that God's going to win. You know, this isn't like, we'll see which God makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Or we'll see which God helps you love your neighbor better. This is, let's see which one can send a bolt from the heavens. <laughs> it's, it's a gutsy move. Um, and they said, it is well spoken. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took a bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god, either is musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Remember I said that actually is part of the Baal myth, that sometimes he falls asleep, or sometimes he dies, and he has to be removed from the underworld. And so, uh, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until their blood gushed out upon them. And at mid, as midday passed, they raved on until the time. <laughs> I love how it just mocks them. They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. We got a friend in China, and she she grew up Buddhist, and when she was saved, they said that she was just overcome, and she finally just, she told everyone around, she said, my whole life I've been praying to Buddha. Buddha cannot hear you. He never heard me. He cannot hear you, but, but God hears us through Jesus. <coughs> like, this story is, is a direct parallel of that, that there was no one to hear them. Baal could not hear them. So <laughs> no one answered. No one paid attention. I love this part, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And this part's sad. I mean, you, the, the story here is just so rich with detail. It says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So obviously there was an old altar to the Lord, weathered, rained on, torn down, used for, you know, cooking or something every once in a while. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones. What are the 12 stones for? According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. You see what he's doing? This isn't something new. 
Remember how I told you the prophet always pulls back and says, remember our past. Remember what God took us from. Remember whose you are. Remember what you are. So he takes 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. To whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two, and it's like 14 quarts of flour. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. He said, do it a second time. They did a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. So it's not just God's about to answer by fire, but it's like, let's put a little water on it. During a drought, by the way. Let's put water during a drought. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, so the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It's very simple. He just prays and then you got verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell. <laughs> and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah was playing for keeps. <laughs> this wasn't like, okay, Y'all go home and think about what you saw. Maybe God will work on your hearts. It was kill the prophets of Baal. So isn't this a little different than the ministry of Nathan the prophet? Or Gad? Or Samuel? <clears throat> you know, Samuel's a little Samuel's rough too because remember, we didn't read this, but the one time he says, go get the king of, uh, of the Ammonites down here, Agag, and killed him, Saul. And Saul's, or Saul's like, yeah, I brought him back. And he's like, you sinned. And so Samuel himself takes a sword and hacks him into pieces. Because he had attacked, his family had attacked Israel when they came to the wilderness. Tried to wipe out God's people. So God said, go wipe them out. Um, but Elijah's, Elijah's rough stuff. Like the prophets... Right now, they are outcasts, they are exiles, but they're not the just high-minded spiritual connoisseurs of fine things in the wilderness. You know, thinking about what would be the best way to have a temple, you know, or, or what's the proper way to do a sacrifice? They are, even though they're ostracized in political court, they're heavily political because the kingship in Israel belongs to God. And they're jealous for his people. And they're jealous for that throne that it's populated by somebody who serves the Lord. So this is what the law prescribes. Well, the law says if a prophet comes into Israel speaking of a foreign God, what do you do? They're dead. God, God's people was not supposed to have a marketplace of ideas where you could just discuss things at arm's length. Well, um, you know what happens. Elijah 
even after this great victory, Jezebel, when she sees it, and Ahab, by the way, don't say, well, let's just serve the Lord. He's, they get mad and they want to get even. So Elijah runs for his life. Um, then Elisha follows after him, who is also, as I said, a miracle worker. And they really, I mean, you could make a movie about their lives. It'd be, there's so much good stuff in here. Like Ahab even gets worse. Um, Ahab wants to steal a vineyard from a guy named Naboth and he can't because he won't sell it to him. So his wife's like, you're the king, just kill him. He's like, okay. You know, I hadn't thought about that before. And so he just kills him. And then Elijah comes to him and, and basically says, uh, have you killed and also taken possession? In the place where dogs lift up the blood of Naboth, dogs, shall dogs lick your own blood? Like, basically, you're going to die in the streets. You know, this... And then, think about this. Now, how would you like this to be your best sermon you ever preached? Verse 23, And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. You're, the queen's going to get eaten by dogs. You know, dogs were scavengers in the ancient world. They roamed the cities. They weren't nice puppies like y'all have. Uh, they roamed the streets and ate garbage and bodies. And so this king and queen, the Lord says, because you've done this, you're going to die in the streets. Now, here's what's crazy. Look at verse 25 of chapter 21. <clears throat> Elijah's preaching did have an effect. The word of the Lord did have an effect. Verse 25, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put, on, put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. He broke. Elijah wore him down with all these signs and miracles and preaching and escaping him. And finally, he broke and he wallowed around on the ground in sackcloth and acted pitiful and begged the Lord for mercy. And this is what's amazing. In verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. So he gets a little bit of mercy, a little bit of time. He doesn't use it quite well. So it appears, and, and you know, the narrative's kind of compressed here, but it kind of appears that what happened is that Ahab, for a time, might have left relying on Baal and Ashtaroth and, and all the others, and, and he really put some prophets to the Lord, to the Lord, back in his court. Now, he didn't leave the two golden cows. He didn't go back to Judah. His repentance was partial, not full. But he seems to kind of turn back, you know, look, this is a godly kingdom. We're going to follow the Lord. We're going to have some prophets of the Lord around. So, it's, these stories are so good. Chapter 22. Y'all ready for this? 
We have another prophet named Micaiah. <laughs> He's also active at the time of Elijah. And Ahab knows about him. Verse, uh, chapter 22, for three years, Syria and Israel continue without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, we know him from some other stories, king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So he's like, you know, right up in here, that's ours. It used to be ours. Why don't we go get it? He took it, his, you know, his dad took it from us. We can get it back now. And he said, will you, he's talking to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Like basically, we're close enough kin, let's, you know, let's go for it. And Jehoshaphat, now remember, he's a godly man. He did some kind of, you know, he had some failures like all kings. But he said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? So it looks like these guys had changed their veil and Ashtaroth coats over and flipped the collars up and gone like, We're prophets of the Lord again. You know, because that's what Ahab said to do again. We're a godly kingdom now. But something smelled off to Jehoshaphat. He's like, is there another one? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. <laughs> you know, maybe you're the problem if that's what happens. Oh, man, I love these stories. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. So he was around, but he just wasn't with the prophets. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. So imagine hundreds of prophets giving out their best sermons. You're going to... Hit them in the, you know, ribs and break them. And, and they're just making up stuff. And, uh, and Zedekiah, the son of Kenana, made for himself horns of iron and said, get this, he makes like a big, big reindeer horns or, or big bull horns or something. And he's got them on his head like a costume. And he's acting out his sermon. He says, thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they're destroyed. You know, I mean, I'm sure that they love that sermon. Problem is, it's fake. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to some of Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. So this is a prophet. This is a prophet of the Lord. He's going to say whatever God tells him to. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And he must have said it sarcastically. Because <laughs> the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? 
So it must have been like, yeah, go up. Yeah, you'll win. And look at this, verse 17. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? So, the rest of it is interesting because the guy with the iron horns has a couple of words with him and he prophesies against him too. But it happens as Micaiah says, and Israel is defeated, Jehoshaphat cries out and has to run, and Ahab is killed. So, we haven't even got to Elisha yet, but his ministry is similar. He acts in opposition to the kings, miracles, the people of God never are left without witness of what God's word is. So let's look on our paper because I want to I want to get to this point. I want to sum up, you know, Elijah, <clears throat> Elisha. I may bring up Elisha a little bit next week at the beginning of the lesson, just so we don't gloss over some of his works. But I want to talk right now about miracles and their function. Why are there miracles all of a sudden? Well, the simple reason is the word of the Lord right now is rare or lost in the northern kingdom. It's rare in the southern kingdom too. In fact, they lose the book of the law and later, I think it's Joash, finds it. And he's like, oh my goodness, we haven't been doing any of this stuff. Like the, the, the Bible was lost. People might have remembered stories from it, but they lost the actual <laughs> words of the Bible for a time. It was put away. It wasn't counted as important. So in an atmosphere like that, God's not going to leave his people. The miracles are there for a reason because when you have two competing sides, one say, no, worship Baal. He's the God. And the other one say, no, you've got to remember your history and your family and your names. You come from the Lord who got you out of Egypt. People are going, I don't really know which way to go. So how would they know in that environment who's speaking the right way? It's a miracle. Because one God answers by fire and vaporizes the altar. One God's servant makes an axe head out of iron float on water. One God raises people from the dead purifies a pot of soup. That's really a funny story. Uh, we'll talk about next week with Elisha. Purifies the soup so that there's not death in the pot. One God speaks by making reality conform to his word and one God doesn't do anything. So which God do you serve? So you can see why the miracles are there. You can see why God chose this era to speak through miracles. Um, think about the Bible this way. Exodus. 
We're going to call this the prophets and the church. Three of the biggest times in the Bible where you don't know what is God's word. Because right now, God's word is being written by Moses. How do you know if he has God's word or the Egyptians have God's word? Moses beats all the Egyptian gods with miracles. When God speaks through Moses, things happen in reality. Poof, it's gone. The Egyptian gods can't answer. Who's God? The Lord. Follow him into the desert. In the prophets, we have the same situation. Which one speaks for God? The miracles happen. They show Israel, well, the Lord, he is God. Serve him. Now with the church, with Jesus and the establishment of the church, you have two competing systems. Which one's the word of God? These new guys who are talking about the covenant finally being fulfilled in the Messiah or these people who said, it's not the Messiah, follow Moses still. Which one are you going to follow? Miracles are not a substitute for God's word and miracles aren't parlor tricks that preachers go around doing all the time on TV. Miracles are things that validate the word of God and prove that God is speaking through those people. That is why there actually are in the Bible, it talks about false miracles. And that's why you're always supposed to evaluate the miracle by the word of God. But the miracle and the word of God will match if it's true from the Bible. And if it's not, it won't match the word of God. Now in a time when you don't know the word of God, a cluster of miracles happens in each of these three instances that make it apparent to everyone where God is working, which way he wants his people to go. With Moses in the Exodus, following the prophets against all these foreign gods, and with Jesus and the apostles in the church. So, why miracles? Because God did not leave his people without witness. There were opposing claims on what is reality, and God's people could not figure it out by themselves. Miracles establish authority, and miracles point to the word of the Lord. So let's uh, close with the last two sentences here where you've got some blanks. I thought we would get further into Elisha than we did, so I'll make up for it at the beginning of next class. We'll go into Elisha a little bit before we go into the writing prophets. But let's finish these two sentences here. Prophets still fulfill their role as covenant blank, even if society around them does not recognize the covenant. What is that? Is it still mediators? Still mediators. I'm going to hammer that word home because I just think it's the best analogy of what they do. God's people belong to him, and even if they don't recognize that he has a claim over them, he sends the prophets to remind them. And last, miracles are independent verification that the message of a prophet is true the miracle is like God signing the autograph on it this is what you listen to miracle any questions comments anything you saw in the stories that jumped out at you that we didn't get into I know we glossed over a lot well I like the part where Kyle said, said that God would send an angel to speak a lie into the prophet's mouth so they would say a lie. 
Yeah, there's a lot of commentaries writing on that saying, is that a parable? Or is that... Because so what happens, if you remember, Ahab sends the messenger. And the messenger tells Micaiah, you better lie. Or you better say good stuff. And he's like, I'll say whatever God tells me to. So when he gets back to Ahab and he tells Ahab, you know, Israel's going to be scattered. And he says, here's what I saw. God was sitting in a council and said, how shall I... uh, let me read it. Uh, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand, on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster to you. Um, obviously, people don't like that verse whenever they sit down and parse it because they say it makes God like, kind of like in charge of causing people to lie. Um. So some commentators say, no, God didn't lie, but he sent a spirit to deceive the people. He, he sent a spirit to deceive these prophets to speak false things. So that gives God a level of agency from it. Other people say it's not really something he saw. It's more like kind of like a parable uh, where he's basically saying, oh, you sent a guy to lie to me? Well, God sent guys to lie to you. You know, kind of like turnabout's fair play. Um, I think this looks like the book of Job a little bit when you have God in a council in heaven and things are going on and God's like, hey, devil, what do you, or Satan, what do you think about Job? And Job and Satan's like, well, if you let me hurt him, he'll, he'll, he'll hate you. And go, go ahead. And then later, what do you think of my servant Job? Ah, well, yeah, he lost some stuff, but if he gets really sick, he'll curse you. Okay, go. You know, that this whole imagery of the court of heaven, I'm just going to tell you, I don't understand it. When it's written that way, it's written that way for a reason, and I take it at face value. I don't have to understand all the intricacies. I know that God is not the author of sin. At the same time, if I want my kids to lie or get mad at each other, all I do is I kind of take my hands off and say, Honey, let them do what they want. And they find ways to do that. And that may be what God is doing here in this story is just saying, okay, send a spirit to make them start prophesying. <clears throat> they'll, they'll, ver- they'll veer from the truth really quick. So is it by causality or allowance? That's the whole question. Theologians have spent a lot of ink on it. I don't know the full answer. If you want a systematic answer, um, I'll just say that God's not the author of evil. But everything that happens... In Scripture and in life, it happens according to the word of and the will of God. Just God is sovereign. Yeah, the Bible says He He did this face value. I think it happened this way. I don't have to get too clever. God can correct me in heaven and say you should have known more, and I'll say yes, I should have. But I'm not going to distrust this verse because it offends my sensibilities. I don't understand God fully.
God understands himself better than I do, and that's what he gave us to believe. So It's an interesting story. And that's where you have this scene between Zedekiah. He comes near and he hits Micaiah on the cheek and says, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And so uh, I guess he's, you know, like, you're going to find out. So the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison, feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, I guess as they're cuffing him, Hear all you peoples, as they're carting him out, like, You better listen up. This was it. And, you know, they, they get destroyed uh, in that battle. And uh, it's it's bad. Any questions? Any more comments? Uh, y'all still like these stories? I mean, when I was a kid, you know, they did the flannel graph with these stories, and they were entertaining. But as I've become an adult, they've become more entertaining. Like. It's just human nature and all of its convoluted sinfulness right on display. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.